called quiet quitting, where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The reality is it's not, and your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. This is getting pretty bad, but I've been here for 20 years, and I have two more years till retirement. I'm gonna power through. All right, you don't wanna respect me or pay me the wage I deserve. Time to start looking for a new job. Another lackluster performance review, so I'm just gonna do my job. Nothing more, nothing less, and find a new one. Do what? Yeah, no, I quit. Has anybody ever heard of that term, quiet quitting? All right, all right, a few more than I expected. Great, awesome. At least half of us, maybe. Um, that word or that phrase kind of surfaced last summer on the internet, on the interwebs, and uh, especially through social media. Um, and Generation Z was sort of behind uh, these viral videos um, about quiet quitting. What is quiet quitting? Basically, it's a movement in uh, younger people, 25 and under, especially those who are in the workplace. Um, and it's a movement to say, I'm not going to go above and beyond at work. I'm actually going to I'm going to act my wage. Act my wage. I thought that was kind of clever. I didn't come up with that. They did. Hashtag act your wage. And, you know, depending on which generation you're a part of, you might see a video like that. I'm not going to go above and beyond. And you might sneer a little bit. Uh, it depends on kind of where you're from, uh, what kind of, uh, you know, experience you had in work or you are having in work right now. Um, will kind of govern the way you see or you experience, um, you react uh, to this movement of quiet quitting. Um, since I have the microphone, I'm going to give you my opinion about it. Um, no, actually, I'm under, I read this really helpful uh, article um, this, this last week, and they take into account some of the reasons behind this phenomenon um, of not going above and beyond at work. Um, Cal Newport, the, the author, said this, that uh, though quiet quitting has uh, had uh, diverse adherence, its core energy comes from knowledge workers who are members of Generation Z, so born between 1997 and 2012. And he said, today's young employees, however, are far from the first population to go through a period of sudden disillusionment about the role of work in their lives. Uh, so many uh, people in this room... Uh, grew up with parents who had gone through World War II. And, uh, you know, they rallied together and they sort of set aside their individual pursuits for a common purpose. And then they had children. And those children, some of you can relate to this, in the 60s and 70s, the social disruptions, uh, the sentiment of their parents' generation who laid aside their individual rights to rally during the war, during the war they seemed stiflingly conformist. I didn't hear any amens out there. Um, the rise of back-to-land, voluntary simplicity, and communal living experience were all, in part, attempts to find meaning outside the structure of employment. And then those nonconformist boomers started to have children, too. And millennials, born between 1981 and 1996, couldn't grow up without hearing the phrase, follow your passion. Follow your dreams. I remember commercials like in between Disney shows, hey, follow your dreams, you know. We all heard that. Get a job, they told their kids, but make it one you love. 
Um, but he goes on to say the destabilizing impact of 9-11 and the financial crises that followed cast doubt on the ideas that our job should be our ultimate source of fulfillment. Enter Gen Z. So again, anyone born uh, between 97 and 2012, they haven't known a time without Wi-Fi or smartphones. Um, I definitely remember a time. Anybody else dial up internet? Come on, millennials out there. We remember a time, but, but Gen Z does not. And Newport, again, says Gen Z formed an understanding of the world in which the boundaries between the digital and the real were blurred. They were blurred. And then the pandemic arrived. Through this disruption, though this disruption negatively affected knowledge workers of all ages, for Gen Z, it delivered an extra sting. The depredations of pandemic-induced remote work, the crush of constant Zoom meetings or classes, for some of you, the sudden uptick of email and chat, the loss of the redeeming social aspects of gathering in offices, stripped the last vestiges of joy from these jobs. And this is the quote I want you to read with me. Quiet quitting is not a life philosophy or policy proposal that needs logical scrutiny. Figuring out how work fits into a life well-lived is hard, but it's an evolution that has to happen. Quiet quitting is the messy starting gun of a new generation embarking on this challenge. So we need to have some empathy for them because we've all been through this. We do it in different ways. But all of us are trying to figure out how work fits into a life well lived. Every worker in this room, every retiree in this room has had to answer that question and grapple with, how do we fit life into the good life or work into the good life? And for all of us, we need to connect our work with God's work if we're going to have that experience of a flourishing life that we're all after, whatever generation we're from. We have to connect our work with his. And three things are going to help us do that. I'm going to walk us through three things. First, God's blueprint for work, the sinkholes for work, and the restoration of work. The blueprint, the sinkholes, and the restoration. With that, I wonder if you might stand, uh, if you're able, uh, for the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, send your spirit, fill us up. That's our prayer the last few weeks. And then the days ahead, fill us with your spirit. And Lord, when your spirit fills us up with the person of Jesus, it affects all of life. Work too. 
And so fill us now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is God's blueprint for work. It's blueprint. Um, so just to catch you up real quick, in the, we've been in the book of Ephesians uh, for a number of months. The first three chapters are thinking primarily Paul's teaching about Christian doctrine. We've been talking, we've been sort of uh, thinking about it as the song of the gospels, teaching us about Jesus, what he's done for us in the person and work of Christ. And then uh, we've transitioned in the second half of the letter. We're almost to the end. Uh, we've been calling it the dance. It's about Christian practice. How does what Jesus has done get into every part of our life? And in this part of the letter, he's talking about Christian uh, families, Christian households. Last week, we heard Patrick talk about the easy topic of marriage. Um, This week, we're talking about work. And next week, we're going to talk about uh, parenting. So come back, parents, especially. Uh, It'll be good. But we're thinking about the family. We're thinking about how does the gospel of Jesus affect the way we do life. Um, and so God's blueprint for work, uh, though, can be very hard uh, when we're wearing sort of our modern lenses. And so what I want to do, um, because you probably only heard or saw the words bond servants and masters in those texts, and it was hard to kind of hear anything else, I, I need to dispel a, a couple misconceptions uh, right away. The first misconception that I want to dispel here is that American slavery uh, is the same or was the same as first century slavery. Um, As you know, American slavery, chattel slavery, was based on ethnicity, um, whereas in the first century, uh, slavery was based on economics. Um, Slavery in this uh, country was horrifically inhumane, whereas in the first century, it could certainly uh, be that way. Uh, There were cases of abuse, manipulation, but it was far more humane of a practice uh, than our country's experience with slavery was. Um, Scholars estimate that a third of the Roman population, some 60 million people, lived as bond servants. Um, Basically, bond servants were the workforce in the first century. You need to keep that in mind. They were the workforce. Um, They were bound to their master for a specific time. uh, most uh, bond servants, scholars show, were freed by the age of 30 years old. Uh, they could work, um, they could have their own property. Many of them owned their own property. They achieved social advancement. Um, they were, could even be released and certainly purchase his or her freedom after a certain amount of time after they paid down the debt that they owed to that master. They had limited rights, um, but it wasn't nearly as um, inhumane Uh, as it was in our country. Misconception number two, uh, Paul condoned slavery because he did not abolish it outright. So that's another misconception that I want to address. Paul, you're right, Paul doesn't uh, abolish it here in this passage. Neither does he condone the existing system of slavery. He doesn't say it's a good thing. He doesn't say this is a great thing. He didn't abolish it outright. Why? Because slavery, again, in that day, was not based on ethnicity or class. There could be CEOs of companies. Uh, There could be doctors and lawyers who went for a time into indentured servitude. Why? Because they went bankrupt. There were no bankruptcy laws in those days. And so to pay down the debt, they had to serve for a time. And so there could be people of all kinds of education and all kinds of class that were in this uh, period 
of bond servanthood. So its abolishment um, at that time would have thrust all slaves and all masters into immediate poverty. However, Paul's instructions for believing masters and bondservants, it actually did lay the groundwork for the abolishment of slavery centuries later. Um, In his book, Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind, historian Tom Holland, uh, not Spider-Man, he says this, uh, The old Greco-Roman order, rooted in the assumption that any man in a position of power had the right to exploit his inferior, had ended. Paul's insistence that the body of every human being was a holy vessel had triumphed. That's very important for us to understand that it was Paul's teaching here to grant them dignity and honor, to actually start by addressing them first. Notice he addresses the bondservant first. He doesn't address the master first. He held them up in high regard. He said, these are part of your family, Christians. Many of the people he was writing to in Ephesus were, in fact, slaves at that time. So he's saying, you are in part of this Christian movement just as much as anyone is. He lifts them up. And this is why um, it makes for a, a, a very um, easy parallel to our own understanding of work and management, bosses and workers in today's world. Um, so I'm going to sort of translate it that way. Starting in verse 5, let's read it again. Workers, obey your earthly bosses with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. We're going to unpack the, the teaching um, a little bit more later on, but especially the adverbs. Um, but I want to highlight something uh, that, that comes through in the text, that in each of these four verses to our four instructions to bondservants, uh, Jesus Christ is named. Jesus Christ is named. Um, what is he saying? Paul envisions that changing diapers, writing emails, making a house, building, all of it is connected or can be connected to our faith in Jesus Christ. It sounds like something you'd find in the Bible, right? Some of you are like, yep, sounds about right. Sounds pretty religious. Um, but I want to say that there's something deeper going on here, and we'll look at this. Uh, In 1942, uh, the author named Dorothy Sayers wrote a piece in the middle of World War II um, uh, called Vocation and Work, and Patrick uh, recommended that I read this uh, this week as I was preparing, and I'm so glad he did, uh, because she really helped me understand God's blueprint for our work. And she says this, God made things, not presumably because he had to, but because he wanted to. And then he made man in his own image, a creature in the image of a creator. And there is indeed one thing that is quite distinctive about man. He makes things. Not just one uniform set of necessary things as a bee with a honeycomb, but an interminable variety of different and not strictly necessary things because he wants to. Even in this fallen and unsatisfactory life, man is still so near his divine pattern that he continually makes things as God makes things for the fun of it. This is God's blueprint for work. These are the plans that he's given to us. 
We are patterned after a joyful worker. And when we, when we write emails, when we teach our children, when we build, when we trade stocks, with, as if Jesus is in the room, as if Jesus is the person for whom we're doing that, it brings joy. But not only that, it helps us to flourish as a society. It helps us to flourish as families. When we work as unto the Lord, we devote not just our attention to our boss or to the bottom line, but to him. Everybody wins. And nobody, no boss in your life is going to want to lose you because you're doing such good and excellent and beautiful work. When you work unto him, things get beautiful. That's what he's teaching us. That's what we're reminded of. This is the blueprint. However, if we disconnect from God and our work, singing on Sundays but working as basically practical atheists on Monday, we will be swallowed up under the weight of working in a broken world. And that's my second point, the sinkholes of work. So underneath a fruitful garden or a a bountiful uh, forest is uh, water, a lot of water in the water table. And a sinkhole develops under the weight of, of the earth above it when the water below the surface runs dry. When the water underneath the ground goes dry, sinkholes develop. Droughts lead to sinkholes. And when we unhitch our work from God's work, uh, we enter into a drought of sorts. It turns our souls dry because we're seeking to tap meaning in the wrong places, either from work or somewhere else or someone else. And our, dry, our souls begin to shrivel up and run dry. Two sinkholes can emerge in our lives, equal and opposite, but equally dangerous for our life, for our marriages, for our families, for our vocations. The sinkholes of overwork and underwork can sink us all. Overwork isn't just a threat for the bosses, the CEOs, the managers, the parents in the room. It's a threat for the employees, the ones working overtime. It's a threat for the moms, the dads. It's a threat for the students. It's a threat for the pastors in the room. We all can be tempted by this idea that if we work, 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 will be okay without any regard to the one who works on our behalf, who made us. That's where the sinkhole can take place. I remember sprinting from class to the library in college. I remember uh, them booting me out in college at whatever time it closed, 2 a.m. or whatever, almost every night. My friends made so much fun of me. I was on the soccer team. They're like, Nerd alert! (laughs) It wasn't so much that I was a nerd. I was an anxious mess. I still have stress dreams from seminary about Greek and Hebrew. (laughs) About, you know, my... I still have this dream that somehow I'll wake up or I'm in, you know, in the dream and uh, my professor said, hey, there's a surprise test today. I was like, whoa, okay, what's going on? If you fail... I'm going to take away your college, your seminary degrees. I'm like, whoa, how do you have this power? 
Miss Van Hook, she was scary. But stress, anxiety, this idea that I had to work more, 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 harder, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. This followed me all the way to seminary. And then I met a girl from Colorado in the library. And she taught me that Sabbath rest was just as important as hard work. She prioritized rest and relationships as much as working hard on her studies. And she was flourishing. I was not. I was burning the midnight oil every night. And here she was on Saturday. Hey, you want to go throw a frisbee? I'm like, I don't have time for that. I got to study for my exam. She's like, oh, I don't work on Saturdays. I try to get all my work done so I can rest and have fun with my friends. You want to come? I'm like, oh, yes, I do. Um, but, I, but, but, but I made so many excuses. She knew how to work hard and to rest well, and she, did, she actually did better work than I did. Resting well uh, reveals a connection to God's work. It reveals that uh, our identity is not wrapped up in our productivity. It's actually wrapped up in Jesus. And resting well is evidence that we believe that, that we can set it down for a day. And I'm still struggling, by the way. I'm still learning how to Sabbath as we speak. Lord, help me. But I'm learning. I think many of us are there. We're learning but it's a struggle. It's a struggle. Are you in a hurry? How would your kids answer that question about you? Are you in a hurry, Dad? Mom, are you in a hurry? You know, we moved from a big city three years ago, and I had to learn the hard way that I brought my hurried heart with me. I thought moving to a small town like Hendersonville that I could be rid of my hurried heart because the pace is so much slower than Boston. But I actually brought it with me. And I've had to learn. I'm still learning. I'm still in process of how to turn it off. The hum inside to do, do, prove, prove, make, make, show is still there, but God is teaching me how to rest, to reveal in my heart that I can trust him because he never stops working, so I can. What about you? Overworkers, the best artists, parents, and teachers, the best workers are never in a hurry, but overworkers are. But that's not the only sinkhole that can swallow us up. Underwork can swallow us too. When we unlink our work from God's work, we are prone to coast, to disengage, and to not do our best work. Uh, Again, Dorothy Sayers says this, how much sin is the result of being bored? She just might drop that one. That was a good one. (laughs) How much sin is the result of being bored? Bored at work. So we look elsewhere for meaning. We're not connecting our work to God's, and so we get so we look for meaning elsewhere, often in the wrong places. Both of these sinkholes, overwork, underward, they can swallow us up. They can swallow our families. They can engulf our friendships, even our marriages. But 
the good news for overworkers and underworkers in the room. And if you're like me, you oscillate. You're not just an overworker, but sometimes you find yourself bored. You find yourself coasting. God, help us. There is hope. There is hope for us. No matter how deep you've fallen or how long you've been down there, I love that verse in the Psalms. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. So if you've fallen down and you can't find your way out of the hole, there is hope. In John 5, there's a scene with a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. Almost 40 years, he had been paralyzed. And he, his friends had, every day, they would rest him by a pool in Bethesda. And this pool was thought to have healing properties. Let me read this interaction to you. Jesus comes up to him and asks him, Sir, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, if I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going another, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Now, there are some things in life that Jesus chooses not to heal, and we don't know why. Uh, after this, this afternoon, I'm going to the funeral of a, of a man uh, who died on just a week ago of pancreatic cancer, a really good friend of mine. And we prayed for three years. We prayed and prayed that God would heal him physically from this affliction of cancer. But God didn't answer our prayer, and we don't know why. We don't know why. He is healed, by the way, my friend. He was a fervent follower of Jesus. He is healed. He is with Jesus right now. He is whole. But there are friends, sorry, there are prayers that Jesus will always answer. Sometimes he comes and he asks us, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed of your addiction to work? Do you? Do you think your wife or your husband wants you to be healed of your addiction to work? Do you think your kids, if you have them, want you to be healed of your addiction to work, to workaholism? It's an addiction. Friends, it's a sin. It's a sin to work too much. Do you want to be healed? Do I want to be healed? This is a question Jesus is asking every one of us in the room today. Do you want to be healed? Maybe overwork runs in your family. Maybe your dad, he never showed up to your basketball games. Maybe your mom was too busy running the house and having three jobs and she just couldn't be there for you. And so overwork runs in your blood, you feel like. You can't stop. 
How could I? It's all I know. For some of you, maybe sloth runs in your, in your fa- family. Excuse me. Perhaps your job feels pointless, meaningless. You hate it. Look, we've all made excuses for our sin. The sin of overwork, the sin of underwork, not working as unto the Lord. All of us, I have too. It's just a busy week, honey. It's just a busy month, honey. It's just a busy life, honey. I don't want to get to that point. We're 10 years into marriage. I don't want to get to 40 years, 38 years, making excuses for being addicted to productivity. Do you? Jesus wants to heal us. Hear him asking you of the affliction of tapping too much or too little meaning in your work. I will heal you. But do you want it? Do you want it? Jesus worked to free this man. And you know the rest of the story? The Pharisees were out for blood after he healed them on the Sabbath. And he equated himself with God. Said, I only work when my father's working. I only do the work my father's doing. You know, equating himself with God. Said, blasphemy, working on the Sabbath, you're dead. And so they hatched the plan to crucify him. This healing of a man who made excuse after excuse for 38 years cost Jesus his life. What is it going to take for us to put work in its proper place? The death of the Son of God. But what do we do in response? We need to repent. We need to turn. For many of us, we need to repent not just once, but probably once every minute. We need to repent and say, Lord, I have forgotten about you. I've just been thinking about me and just putting in so I can make a name for myself, so I can get ahead, so I can climb that ladder, so I can be viewed as a hard worker or a good worker, whatever the excuses that you make. I can relate, but Jesus can heal. Jesus can change a heart. And that's what my third and final point is, the restoration of work because of the gospel. Because of him, we can work as unto the Lord. Paul begins by talking to the bond servant, right? Again, there's this dignity and honor that he shows to the most menial workers of his day. So if you find yourself in a menial job, have hope. You can connect it. There is honor in what you do. There's no such thing as menial work in the kingdom of God. There's no such thing. All of work, every single job, every person's employment is and can be uh, connected to what God is doing in the universe. This is the amazing thing about Christianity, that you matter. Your work matters to God. So let's learn how we can do that. Four adverbs. Out of reverence for Jesus, workers serve their bosses respectfully, sincerely, conscientiously, and pleasantly. We'll take those real fast in turn. 
First, verse 5, respectfully, bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. So he's not saying uh, be a yes man or a yes woman for your boss. This is a respect for uh, the position, the, the authority that our bosses, our supervisors, our managers have over our lives as an extension of God's supervision, authority, and management over our life. This is what he's saying. So we treat them with respect. And then in the parallel passage in Colossians 3, uh, that word fear and trembling is actually replaced with fear of the Lord. So again, we respect our bosses. When we do that, we're respecting Jesus. This is what he's saying. When we respect them, we respect Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean we always agree with our managers. They might be, have done things to you or to others that, is, uh, that you can't condone. And yet, we can still, even if we need to leave the company, some of you have had to do that, some of you need to do that now because of their mismanagement, um, but we still treat them with respect. doesn't mean that we have to obey them, but we must respect them. Why? Because we respect him, even if we're on the way out. Next, sincerely, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Uh, sincere just means singleness of heart. It means there's no pretense, there's no pretending, there's no division in your heart like, oh, I, I, I really want to do uh, this good job, but uh, I don't really like this. Um, he's, she, he or she is just not really um, treating me fairly, um, and so I, I, I don't know. This is, this is a sincerity even to sinful bosses. This is a unity of heart because why? As servants of Christ, whose love knows no pretense, we can show the same to our bosses. Next, conscientiously, verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. This uh, word in Greek, eye service, literally means eye slaves. Opthodoulos, eye slave. So we don't... In Christ, we don't have to be slaves to other people's perception of us. We're not slaves to the way our boss views us, our manager views us, or our work. See, a people pleaser works hard when the boss is around. But someone who knows Jesus works hard all the time. Why? I love this verse, one of my favorite verses in 1 John. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he sees, he knows everything. So the person who's omnipresent, who's omniscient, this is how he feels about us. He does not condemn us because of Jesus. The, person, the only person in the universe whose perception of you matters, we know he loves us. We know he approves of us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So that means we don't have to work hard just when the boss is around. We work hard when always, because he is always around, and he loves us, and he's proud of us, and he's with us. Pleasantly, workers work pleasantly. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free. So you know that feeling you have on Friday or like uh, right before 
on, on Friday before a weekend or before like a big trip uh, that you've been planning for a while, you know, you, you kind of have like a, a little bit of a, a, a pep in your step, you know? Maybe you got a bad email, like a, an angry email or something, but you're like, ah, it's no big deal. I'm about to go on vacation, right? You're feeling good. Nothing can hit you. Nothing can hurt you. Um, knowing that rest is on the way affects our mood. It affects our work. It affects our uh, output. And what if you knew that no good work that you do at your company, at your home, wherever you work, will be left unrewarded by God in eternity? What if you knew that? How would you work? You know you're going to get a reward of eternal, eternal weight and of glory. How would that affect your workplace? When you sow goodness in the workplace, we will reap goodness from our master in eternity. That's what Paul is teaching workers. And then he has a, a, a final word for the bosses in the room, the managers in the room. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there's no partiality with him. So he's using the golden rule on managers. If you want respect, if you're a boss, if you're a CEO, if you manage people, if you want to be respected by your employees, the people under your care, under your supervision, you need to show them the same respect that you expect from them. This is what Paul is saying. Treat them, treat your worker how you want the worker to treat you. Don't expense with the respect that you expect to be shown by those you manage. Um, and then he says, don't threaten them. Stop your threatening. Threats are always a misuse of power. And you know what else? They also are relationship killers. Threats are relationship killers. Manipulation, gaslighting, verbal threats are always, always antagonistic to the persons that we want to be in good and healthy relationships with. If we want a good and healthy organization, Paul is saying, stop your threats. To the extent that we understand Jesus' laying down of power and refraining of threats, to that extent will we love and respect like we want to be loved and respected. Amen? Um, a month ago or so, I got to go to a small uh, college in Wilmore, Kentucky, and I heard 1,500, 2,000 people singing and praising Jesus like I've never heard them sing or praise before. It was a special thing to be at. That's my alma mater, so I hadn't been there in a while, 12 years or so, and, and I felt like I should go and see it for myself, this revival that was taking place a couple weeks ago. Friends, revival doesn't only look like singing and praising in a college chapel no one's ever heard of until now. It actually looks like people having Jesus affect their lives so much and affect their work so much that they would love their customers, that they would love their employees, that they would serve them as if they're serving Jesus. That's what revival leads to. That's what the extraordinary love of God does. It changes the ordinary places of life. That's revival, friends. 
We'll know revival came and is coming when it affects the way we work, when it affects our homes. So we're going to pray to that end, and I'm going to invite two guys to come up, uh, Grant Angel, if he'd come up, and Rick A. Bear, if they would come up. They're going to lead us in prayer, and they represent uh, two generations or two sort of demographics in our church. And I just thought it'd be meaningful if, if they would pray for you and the people that they represent in our church. So here you go, Grant. So Grant, who are you going to pray for today? Um, the young generation. The young generation um, under the age of 25. Awesome, thanks. Yeah. So, dear God, we love you and we are glad to get to be here today to worship and glorify you. Thank you for an awesome sermon today from Andrew. Lord, our hearts go out to Generation Z. The young generation is just mm-hmm. dealing with all sorts of things these days, school and work and depression and loneliness. They are our country's future. Lord God, we ask that your spirit would move through the young people on this earth and comfort them and let them know that you are God. Mm. We all need someone to look up to in our lives, and often that is you, Lord. Please bless the young generation as they head into spring break, a time of... Uh, rest. Um, we just ask all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. That's great. And Rick, who are you praying for today? I'm praying for uh, anyone over the age of 25. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So it's a big demographic and we're dealing with a lot of different things. Yes, so let us pray. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, we give you praise and thanks for your word that challenges us in the area of work. Lord, may we uh, always uh, look to you and give thanks to you for your love for us, Mm -hmm. for your sovereignty over our lives, and may we work with sincerity and honesty and genuine effort, just as we would serve our Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. For those of us who are retired, may we also consider the value of our time, that it is worthy. And may we use that time wisely and in ways that glorify you. May all of us work with enthusiasm, just as we would work for our Lord Jesus. Let us always keep in mind that the Lord will reward us for the good that we do, no matter whether we're servants or leaders. And Lord, especially we lift up those who are in authority, leaders, managers, bosses, May they set a good example by treating those who report to them in the same way. May those in authority recognize that God has placed them in those unique roles. May we all be encouraged and encourage one another, knowing that all people are accountable to the same Lord and Master in heaven. I offer this prayer in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.